Welcome to the Medical Independent Innovation in Healthcare podcast series, where we explore the advances that are transforming Irish healthcare and the innovative minds behind them. From cutting edge technologies, to groundbreaking research, to new models of care, Ireland is at the forefront of medical innovation. Our guests are leading figures in the Irish and international healthcare community who are revolutionising the way patients are being treated. So whether you're a healthcare professional, a patient, or simply curious about the latest developments in Irish medicine, join us for an engaging and informative discussion. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Medical Independent Innovation and Healthcare podcast series. I'm your host, Priscilla Lynch, Clinical Editor of the Medical Independent. Joining me in this episode is Professor Orla Hardiman, one of Ireland's leading researchers into neurodegenerative diseases, whose groundbreaking work is renowned internationally in the field of motor neuron disease. Orla is Professor of Neurology at Trinity College Dublin and Head of the Academic Unit of Neurology housed in Trinity Biomedical Sciences Institute, as well as a practising consultant neurologist in Beaumont Hospital Dublin. She has almost 460 peer-reviewed papers to her name and has been the recipient of numerous national and international awards over the years. So firstly, Orla, let's go back to the beginning and tell me about what attracted you to neurology and your specialist areas of interest. It's a good question. Actually, um, I don't remember ever not wanting to be a doctor. Well, I, for a little period of time, I thought I might be a historian, but then I went back to medicine. So I'm, I'm, I'm unusual. There's no medics in my family at all. Um, they're mostly artists and, and musicians and creators of various different types. Uh, so wh- when I went to college, um, I, I liked the idea of what makes a body work, what makes us who we are. And, and, and I, when I was going through my undergraduate, um, I, I thought maybe I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Um, and I, t- I did an intercalated year. I did a BSc halfway through my medical uh, training and, and did that in physiology. And what I really liked about physiology was <clears throat> you didn't have to remember everything. You, you could work out things from first principles. If you knew the first principles, you could work out what was you know what was going on so I really liked that that gave me a nice sort of ground grounding and also I, I we had to do a little research project in, in physiology as well as part of the degree so in the second half of my my undergraduate um, I became more interested in the brain I realized that's probably where I wanted to be and, and thought maybe about psychiatry um, but I did my internship then um, in St Vincent's Hospital and, and I did three months of psychiatry during my internship and realized that I just the guide wires weren't really there. It was a, it was it was a bit it was a bit difficult to be sure, what you know what you thought was actually what was really happening, and and I was attracted more then to the idea of understanding the brain, um in in a more sort of um grounded tangible way, and also it really appealed to my background in physiology as well that you, if you knew the basics you could figure out what was going on, um if you knew. Um, the structure and the function of the brain, you could figure out what is going wrong. And so the idea was that in neurology that you you um, localise where the problem is and you deduce from your clinical examination um, and your knowledge of the nervous system what the problem is and then you can figure out uh, where to go from there. So that's what attracted me to neurology was that idea of um, knowing the basics and being able to figure out from there. It's often seen as a very intimidating specialty and it's also very broad. But you were particularly attracted to the diseases that maybe, particularly at the time when you entered uh, medicine, would have been seen as kind of a hopeless cause. 
Yes, I, I think that is a bit later. I mean, what attracted me um, to neurology was probably what attracts most people to neurology is that idea of structure and function and neurological deficit. When I did my training in the US, there was a kind of a joke. Um, it's not really a joke, I suppose. Um, you learn your neurology stroke by stroke. You know, so so the loss of function was allowed allowed us to understand um, what the function of the brain of that was in which the deficit um, arose, what that function is. Uh, th- that's not actually entirely true. It's very anatomically based, and I've moved on in my thinking from that point of view. Um, but um, yeah, so 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 I I think that um, I think that if you think about medicine in general, actually. Um, this idea that we can fix things and make them go away completely is 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 something that we learn as medical students, and we we uh, medical students get to um, understand diseases that are for which there are purported treatments. But if you think about the the vast majority of what people come to doctors for, they're mostly diseases that are chronic and manageable but not curable. So if you want to cure your um, disease you become a surgeon um, and and if you want to if, if you become any sort of physician the the majority of workload is is taking care of people that have chronic conditions and that are that you manage it, it, it's it's not that common to cure um anything other than fe- infectious diseases as a physician and then of course in in neurology um you know we look after people with with um episodic deficits and fixed deficits but most people with neurological problems the, the problems are um are, are chronic and and, 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 and and long long lasting that doesn't mean that you can't help them though it means that you can engage with them um and and walk the walk and walk the journey and and ameliorate the symptoms to the extent that we can and we do that really well in some diseases for example in parkinson's disease and over, over the course of my career We've got to a point where some diseases really do make a difference. For example, in multiple sclerosis, um, they, over the course of my professional career, MS has gone from being a, a disease where we could do very little except use steroids in the context of a relapse and hope that the relapse would get better to really effective disease-modifying therapies, at least for the relapsing remitting form of the disease. So even in the space of my of my professional lifetime, we've seen a disease that was really um very frightening for people and associated with a lot of uncertainty and the likelihood of a lot of disability to a condition where people live their lives really well uh, with minimal disability because the treatments are so good now. So, you know, so I, I think that's been a really exciting part of, of, of my career as well, is to look at diseases where this has really been happening and and being able to to be part of that story and then working on diseases where we know that could happen if we work hard enough to do it. And you've been at the forefront in Ireland specifically of trying to bring those treatments to patients first and being involved in clinical trials, which is something that it's not always been an easy task in Ireland. I suppose if you could maybe tell us a little bit about how that's changed over the years. Yes, I mean, Ireland had a bad reputation. Um, uh, apart from um, the Cancer Clinical Trial Network, which John Crown set up, as, as, as you know, uh, we, we had not a very good reputation uh, for conducting trials in Ireland, and that's partly to do with the infrastructure. When I started out, we had no clinical research centres either. And and there was no um, recognition of the need for this being a discipline of it in its in its own right. Clinical trial development and clinical trial delivery is a discipline in itself. It's, it's an entire professional discipline. And the idea that you could 
you know, hire a registrar for research purposes and, and have them do a bit of clinical trial on the side is, is erroneous. It's, it's unfair to the registrar. It's unfair to the trial. Um, and and, and our, our, um, uh, the, the way that we, we um, sought or tendered for trials um, um, up to you know, a number of years ago was on that basis. So I think more recently there's a recognition with the with the advent of the HRB and Welcome funded CRC clinical research centres um, uh, that there's a resource um, infrastructure and resource within those centres that that you can access and that you can bring trials with, with the support of those resources. In my own case, actually, we we have our own funded clinical trial group, so so we we do enough clinical trials that I can fund uh, some nurses and a business manager and. A permanent, a couple of permanent clinical trial fellows. Um, so they, they, that's what they do. They do that. They do trials and they do clinics, um, and that's the way it should be. So I think, I think um, uh, it, it's been a really exciting time. Actually, we started out doing MS trials, but in the more recent past, there's been an explosion in trials of motor neuron disease as well. And we've six or seven running, uh, either running or just about to run for motor neuron disease now. And, and at very early phase trials as well, we're doing a couple of phase one trials, which was never done, not done up to very recently in Ireland. We've done some gene therapy trials as well, which is really exciting um, in, in, in Ireland to have done that. So things have moved on a lot in the last few years from that point of view. And can you tell us a bit more about that? Because motor neuron disease, it is a horrible disease, really, to be blunt. Um, and there is often a sense of hopelessness uh, among patients who uh, unfortunately do get that disease. But you've done an awful lot of work on motor neuron disease and you've provided new insights into the complex genetic components uh, of motor neuron disease. And particularly in Ireland, um, if you want to tell us a bit about setting up the, the patient register and how you've gone to do you know, early stage trials uh, in Ireland. Well, I think when... when um... When somebody uh, receives a diagnosis that's um, most likely going to be life-limiting, of course, it's a catastrophic diagnosis, and 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 people's entire future is is taken away from them, and and um, they have to readjust their life view and the life view of their family. But my experience over the last thirty years is that um, people um, people humans are really resilient. We're a really resilient species. And and we can adjust quite quickly to the new parameters in which we live. And our experience is that um, uh, the vast majority of people with motor neuron disease um, uh, adjust. And if we measure their quality of life using the right instruments, we can show that um, people can retain their quality of life. If we think about this from an existential point of view, um, I mean, we we live and, and work and, and trot along in our lives uh, with this with the knowledge that we're going to die you know but but we are able to push that away from from if if, if we lived um in the knowledge that everybody's going to die and i'll be definitely dead and in 50 years i'm probably much shorter than that um, and 50 years is, is, is a ridiculously long time uh, from my, my age but if we lived on the notion that even in 30 years time i'll be dead you know that that would create an existential crisis. So we're able to actually push that back. With people with motor neuron disease, what we what we have to face up with is is a time limit, which is different from the time limit that people normally would have expected. But if you can adjust to that, which people do, you can live with hope in your life. After that, you can live with enjoyment in your life. So I don't accept that people are hopeless when they develop motor neuron disease. I I, I think that. 
people adjust their expectations in life and and people can do that really successfully and i've been really really um i've learned a huge amount and and been regularly um in awe and and um uh, of the way that people can do that and that what people can teach us in in facing the the uh, um uh the, the liked expectation of a, a, a shortened life expectancy, but yet um, have the resilience to live their life now and today and, and tomorrow and the next day. And, and I think that, so I, I think that um, hopelessness is the wrong term. I mean, we're all, we should all be hopeless in that regard because we are, we're all going to die. It's, it's, it's a question of when and, and, and how. Um, so, so I, I, I think that, um, I think that's something we should we should recognise um, in people who have life limiting conditions because it doesn't mean that it's hope limiting and it doesn't mean that it's quality of life limiting. It doesn't have to be. Uh, going back to the register, so when I came back from uh, from the US um, in the early nineties, I came back actually to, to UCD and I went back to physiology for a few years as a Newman scholar, and I was also doing a little bit of clinical work um, uh, in Beaumont as a um, I, 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 they allowed me in to do a couple of clinics and I, I set up a neuromuscular clinic because I had trained in neuromuscular at the time um, and uh, there were there were only 10 neurologists in the country at the time and it was in the mid in the early 90s um, and there was <clears throat> the neurology was really this sort of very academic discipline um, the joke was diagnose adios you'd make a diagnosis and that's it um, the intellectual pursuit was was um, uh, attractive to us and um the the wherewithal and the infrastructure to look after people wasn't just wasn't there um so one of the things that that i saw that i wanted to do was to try and and um build a, a program that would um not not just make the diagnosis but that would would put whatever interventions that would be valuable for people to put those in place and it was really a greenfield site. So so I set up the original clinic in, in, in 1994, and then I was appointed as a consultant in 1996. So I, I, I was I was able to set up some additional clinics in these multidisciplinary clinics and, and um, worked really closely with the voluntary sector at the time as well. And um, because I trained in neuromuscular disease and because motor neuron disease was, recognized, was seen or still is sort of categorized incorrectly as a neuromuscular disease, um, I, I I had seen some uh, people with, with motor neuron disease in Boston, although my area of research was actually in, in muscular dystrophy at the time and cell biology. Um, but but when I came back to Ireland, I realised that actually you know cell biology for a practicing clinician is, is not very practical in Ireland because the infrastructure isn't there. You can't have a sort of a dual role as you know a, a wet lab hands-on person and also be an effective clinician, especially. On a one and three on call with you know uh, ten year old eleven I was the eleventh neurologist in the country so looking after a population of you know probably about half a million people or more because we were the national centre as well at the time so we took we did call from we took call from everywhere in the country so running a lab was was not practical so I, I shifted my my clinic my research emphasis away from wet lab laboratory based stuff to epidemiology and and um, looking at at us thinking of, of Ireland as an island um, uh, uh, with a relatively um, a population in which there was very little immigration, a lot of emigration. 
and, and thinking about what you know, what would be valuable and useful, um, and setting up the register for motor hearing disease was something that um that I had discussed with the Irish Motor Hearing Disease Association, and with my colleagues, my mentor in Boston had been Bob Brown, who who made his name actually on, on um, identifying um, the first gene that was associated with motor hearing disease, SOD one. Although he also had done a lot of really groundbreaking work on Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So, so, so my my research interests um, around trying to make a difference in uh, in these diseases, neuromuscular disease, and my interest in in I've always been interested in epidemiology. I've always been interested in you know our I'm trained. I went went to an all Irish school, so Irish the you know, Irish cultural heritage is very important to me as well. So being able to build something in Ireland that we could grow in our own time, build an infrastructure that wasn't necessarily competing internationally that we didn't have to worry about other groups scooping what we were doing uh, but we could grow slowly and really well setting up the register was was a really nice way of being able to do that with the support of the Irish Motor Association and the Health Research Board as well so I did I did a little work in other areas as well um, around those areas so did, I set up an MS clinic so we did a little bit of work in MS as well and, and uh, some, some work in post-polio syndrome as well but the the register was was in motor neurons is because it was it population was small enough that we would be able to capture everybody and then we could set up the multidisciplinary clinic and we would be able to treat everybody and then we could show that running a multidisciplinary clinic improved outcome which it does so that's how it started. That was going to be my next question. It's not all just about the science and, and being in the lab. It's also making practical changes to support uh, patients in living their daily lives uh, with these diseases. So you were the first to set up a multidisciplinary clinic in neurology. Um, we're all about multidisciplinary clinics now, but you were obviously a pioneer in that area. And it really did help improve patient outcomes. And you've also all been about working in a team, which, as you highlighted there, we have such a shortage of neurologists in Ireland. It has improved in recent years. But I was very struck by a recent um, Irish Neurology um, Association conference where um, a speaker for Finland pointed out that even though we're similar in size and population and uh, socioeconomic circumstances, they have five times more neurologists than we do. So how on earth did you have time for such innovation in your career when you're coming up against this never-ending onslaught of demand for, for clinical care and, and then trying to sit back and, you know, how do I understand this disease better? How do I make patient care better? I, I think that, um, I think it's really important to learn from your peers. Um, and, and our peers don't have to be in the same discipline. One of the things that I found really helpful in my young career uh, wasn't what was the the um, availability of leadership and 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 um, support um, from um, women, usually, in in other cognate areas. So for me, setting up the multidisciplinary clinic was a no brainer uh, because. I didn't have all the skill sets. I was aware that I didn't have all the skill set to be able to take care of these people, and that I had colleagues in the hospital who had skills that I didn't have. And these are my colleagues in nursing, and my colleagues in physiotherapy and occupational therapy and speech and language therapy. And so when I when I joined Bowman first, I I um, uh, developed really um, close um, professional but also personal relationships with the relevant heads of those cognitive areas of uh, in, in physiotherapy and occupational therapy and speech and language therapy and dietetics. And then then subsequently in neuropsychology, the late Deirdre McMacken, 
who was a pioneer in her own right and, and sadly, sadly um, and passed away early in, 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 in life. Uh, um, but we her legacy um, lives on in, in Beaumont in the neuropsychology department there. So it is working with, with the heads of departments um, in, across the neurorehabilitation um, field and also within the nursing domain. We had some really, really good, still do, um, nursing leadership uh, in Beaumont. So that leadership um, across those disciplines for me was was a huge enabler and, and, and um, allowed us to work together to, to really um, learn from one another um, and to, to have the, the uh, sum of what we did being much greater than the parts that, 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 that comprised that sum. And I think, it, I think that may in part be to do with um, uh, my own formation um, as, as a woman uh, in medicine because um, when, I, when, I was, when I was growing up, the, all of the role models and all of the senior um, uh, leaders in medicine were men, and um, it was it was difficult to to see oneself, you know, that that sort of juxtaposition of being female but also being in position, leadership position, and looking at other leaders in other areas and being able to learn from those leaders uh, was really helpful to me. And and at the time, and I, it's I don't want a sexual stereotype really, but I think it has to do with our formation. This idea of being able to reach out to say, look, I really don't know enough about this. Can you help me? Um, can you can you um, help to inform and refine my perspective on what I'm doing here? Um, and being able to do that, being being able to say to other people, I I don't know enough here. You need to help me. I think possibly in my generation, women were a little bit better at doing that than men. That maybe changed, and I don't I don't want to sound sexist or sexual stereotyping but uh, the way we were the way we were brought up and the way for example my my male colleagues my brothers and my my colleagues in in going through college that would have been difficult for men to do 15 20 30 years ago it was more difficult to sit up and say well actually i want to start this i want to do this let's reach out and work together because often you know medicine is seen as working in silos but now at this stage of your career you're very well known for your mentoring of younger colleagues male and female um, and just trying to get i suppose everybody involved in research early on and that they're supported adequately and encouraged to do so yeah and i i think it's really important i mean i, I think when i when I look back at my own younger career, um, and I, I, I say this, one of my sons is um, is a, a healthcare professional, well, he's a social worker, and I say to him, you know, when you have a bad experience uh, in your professional life, well, you, you don't get bitter, you don't get angry, you learn, you say, i never, ever, ever going to let that happen to somebody else when I'm in charge. And, and so I think I think we learn uh, both from our positive experiences and from maybe not so positive experiences about how to do stuff. And uh, from my point of view, um, you know, forging ahead and 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 trying to um, make a a, a a a career path for which there wasn't really a path um, uh, made me quite feel quite strongly and almost passionately, I suppose, that the track that I leave should be you know we should try and pave that over uh, and not let the not let the grass grow onto it again, so that other people can. Uh, follow through um, along the same track. It's more difficult nowadays than it was though in my day because in my day because there was such poor infrastructure and and so there was, there was so little, it was green field that was negative in one way because there was no money and, and, and very little 
out there. But in another way, it was actually really exciting because you could you could come up with ideas, and there were enough people out there um, to to say that's a good idea, and, and let's see if we can make this happen. And one of the people, from my point of view, um, well, some of my early mentors, for example, Hugh Staunton in Bowman was was very supportive of my early career. Uh, and then my research career, um, Dermot Kelleher, who who was um, head of school and dean of 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 uh, the faculty and vice president of medical affairs in in Trinity, um, was really supportive. Um, and I I was in Beaumont, so that was a RCSI linked linked hospital. But I I, I reached out to to Dermot quite early on in the in the mid two thousands, and um, he was a, he was really supportive. And that was very pivotal to the development of my career and also to the development of the academic unit. Dermot was with one of these visionary can-do people uh, where if you go up with a good idea, um, Dermot would let you, um, would support you to try and, and make it happen. I still had to do all the fundraising myself and still had to put in all the infrastructure to set up the academic unit. But without the support of the head of school and the, and the, the dean, and, uh, that wouldn't have happened. So there are people along the way where, where you can, uh, if you find them, uh, and their enablers, you can re- really make things happen as well. And you really helped put those pathways in place and those structures, which is really heartening. So those structures are there. Research is being done, uh, really groundbreaking and internationally uh, recognised research as well. But there's no shortage uh, in innovation to ideas and enthusiasm. What can be the issue often is changing the way things are done and convincing those who hold purse strings. And that's also been a, been a big part of your career as well, because You've made these fantastic discoveries, but how do you bring it into clinical practice? How do you get it out there? And you are very well known as well as a great patient healthcare advocate. And you also set up the Neurological Alliance uh, of Ireland as well uh, many years ago, too. So if you want to tell us a bit about your advocacy as well, that you've had to go on the airwaves and in the media, sometimes when things have been frustratingly slow, when you want to make these changes. Well, just going back to the very beginning of which I said, I'd love to take credit for additional money going into research, but I, I don't think I can take credit for that. That's, you know, the economy improved and SFI has become more interested in bio, the biomedical side of things. Um, the Health Research Board as well has, has, has had its funding. Um, it, it's still not funded adequately, actually, but uh, at least they have, they have a, f- a, a, a funding stream. Uh, going back to the um, setting up of the NAI and then the sort of advocacy movement, um, th- that was really sort of uh, almost organic, but also quite pragmatic. So wh- wh- when I started in Beaumont, um, like I said, I, I, there were very few neurologists. I was the 11th and um, I, I'd set up these clinics. It, it was really obvious to me that we, we should have people who knew what they were doing in the clinics. And that meant not just neurologists because we're good at diagnosing but the ongoing management of people needed other disciplines and other expertise. And um, I realised quite early on that the voluntary sector actually had a lot of that expertise, had a bad, you know, the, my generation uh, in our formation, we were we were discouraged from engaging with what were considered as patient groups because they, they sort of were perceived to get in the way of it. Um, I, I took a different view in that I thought there was a lot we could learn from the patient groups. So, um, when I set up the clinics, I set up the the um, neuromuscular motor neurons using post polio, and and I set up an MS clinic as well. And um, I, I was approached by Audrey Craven, who at the time was a um, the chief executive of the Migrant Association, uh, a, a very um, compelling woman, and she's a good friend of mine still. Uh, to um, ask me, would I set up a migraine clinic? And um, 
when I looked at our data, I realized that about 30% of all the referrals to neurology were, were, were migraine, were headache. So I agreed to set up a migraine clinic, even though my training is in neuromuscular. I actually set it up with, with, um, with a psychiatrist, with Veronica Keane, who's now a professor over in Tala, um, because it seemed to me like that would be a sensible thing to do because a lot of um, migraine had comorbidity with it. But in the context of doing that, I, I invited the voluntary organisations to come into the clinic with us um, so, and, and sit in in the clinic and provide the support for people, the practical support. This is in the late 90s, early 2000s. There was very little out there in terms of community support. And the voluntary sectors were, were filling a massive gap. And the IMNDA, for example, the Motor Neurology Association, had an equipment bank. So it was actually quite pragmatic and useful to have them in the clinic because they could provide the equipment and support that the HSE wasn't providing. And the, looked at, worked with MDI Muscular District Ireland as well. And looking at, at the sort of needs that people had, it became really obvious to me that all the organisations were looking for the same thing. They were looking for better patient care and better support and 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 um, better better um, buy-in from clinicians. Uh, so I got together with a few of them with whom I had worked, and we decided to put together this Neurological Alliance of Ireland. And I had some, I'd raised some money for something else, and we were able to transfer the money over to set it up. And so we, we, we kicked it off in, I think it was um, 1999, as, as I recall. Um, and it's still going. So under the fantastic leadership of Max Rogers, who's the chief executive now, and it's just 30, over 30 organizations within the NAI now. So it was a real success story. And out of that, we were able to build this sort of um, a patient advocacy program. Um, and we, we were, um, because these people in these voluntary organizations were, were very well skilled. There were um, a lot of them were founders of their organizations and, and were very um, skilled, skilled politically. We were able to access um, senior um, political uh, figures, including at the time Michael Martin, who was a, who was a minister for health at the time, and, and got up Corlin and Hospital review of neurology. So that was the beginning of recognizing um, that we had fewer neurologists than they had in, in Mongolia. And then building the program for for um, uh, uh, the development of, of additional neurological um, care and services, more neurologists, but better services as well. But out of that actually came um, this idea or this, this um, recognition that um, people with neurological disease had, they, you know, most people had chronic illness. And, and, and it was really obvious to me that um, the best way to manage people with a chronic illness is within a public sector. And, and it was the beginning of the, the noughties and there was money in the system. And um, I was becoming increasingly concerned about the move towards privatisation of medicine. Um, and, and the privatisation would, would, would not support the development of services for people with chronic disease because that, that model is, is profit-driven and it, it's, it's in and out. It's, it's, it's intervention um, uh, uh, payment and then back out, and so to me that was that was anathema. That was a the completely wrong way of looking at at how we should be delivering healthcare. So I became involved uh, during the the noughties in um, an advocacy uh, with some like minded colleagues um, to protect the public health system. Um, so uh, um, I got worked with some of the trade unions as well, actually, uh, and um, and some of the the more left leaning politicians um, and colleagues in. Uh, um, who had the same view that I did? But um, we called we developed a network called Doctors Alliance for Better Public Healthcare. Uh, Christian O'Malley, who was the president of the IMO at the time, who had known for many years, was also 
a strong advocate and, and, and a, a, a partner. We, we did a lot of work at that time and put out pamphlets and did public um, uh, public presentations and debates. I debated against Mary Horney a couple of times, um, uh, diametrically opposed views. <laughs> I remember uh, that one. And, and the only thing that saved the system, actually, all the things that we predicted uh, happened, which was that uh, the private sector wouldn't really be able to cope with this sort of chronic disease and the public sector would be denuded of funding. And and that's exactly what happened, unfortunately. And then the crash happened and the private sector went belly up and the public sector was had didn't have any resources and we're still recovering from that. So it was a very depressing time, actually. Um, and I don't know that we made much success. Uh, the same issues arise today as they did 15 or 20 years ago. Some of the younger doctors... Um, have been working now along the same trajectory, and I've, I've sent them all over our pamphlets and our slide decks. And unfortunately, they're they're still relevant now. They have the same relevance now that they had then. The things have improved a bit. I mean, I, I'm a great advocate for salon care, for example. I think what salon care is doing is is the way right um, um, approach. I think we should be moving things back into the community. I think we're excessively hospital-based. I think we should respect our general practitioner colleagues. I think they should be funded adequately. I think the resourcing is, is top-heavy in the hospitals and, and should be moved back out into the community. So some of the work that I've been doing more recently um, in my role as, as clinical lead is aligned with those sorts of views that I've had over the years about um, moving people out of hospitals, um, recognising the value of other disciplines, not just physicians, but the role of, of nursing and other clinical professionals, uh, the, the capacity for the community services to, to, to provide care um, and the Neurological Alliance has been working more recently on, on building a programme around neurorehabilitation, which I really support as well, this idea that we should have really good neurorehabilitation services within the community and that we should be able to link seamlessly between the hospital and the community. So the patient journey is not compromised. The patient journey is smooth and seamless and the person gets the care that's um, of the highest quality as close to home as possible. And that's their their they're the aspirations of salonic care as well. So they align very well with my own philosophy around how we should be delivering healthcare. And you've also been able to bring your own philosophy to being clinical lead for neurology in the HSEs. What's been the most exciting part of that and what changes have you managed to bring in? So, so I think the first thing to do is to bring um, my training in grant writing and, and evidence-based care, evidence-based, uh, which was what we do as researchers, to the idea of service development, you know, and and I think I think we don't pay enough attention to that as as clinicians. There's a sort of view, what I do is really important, and you should fund me because I'm re- what I do is really important. And while that's true, we're one of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of competing voices. Why should neurology be 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 more important than hip surgery? You know, what why should we get more resources than you know than cancer or 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 diabetes. So that, that really began to worry me in the early 2000s, actually. You know, shouldn't we be working together to make a case for all of the services being approved at all of the, you know, at, at the same level? Um, so from the clinical lead point of view, I'm just about to step down, actually. I've done I've done five years. And um, I, I think I think it's been a good five years. Um, the, we, we published a model of care in 2016. Uh, Edino Driscoll was a program manager and Tim Lynch was the was a clinical lead. So that set the scene for where we wanted to go. And um, we um, were lucky in, in, in a way as well, I think, um, in that uh, the HSE is is is, is uh, beginning to transform itself as well and, and recognising, for example, the importance of 
things outside the trolley counts and so the importance of, of waiting lists and scheduled care and making scheduled care practical um, and efficient. Um, and so over, over the last few years, what, what I, I tried to focus on were, were really three things. Uh, one was geographic inequity. So, so there's a massive problem um, across parts of Ireland um, in the access to neurological care, particularly in the northwest, um, in, from, from west of the Shannon upwards, uh, some of my colleagues in Galway and Sligo are really struggling. Uh, so also in the southeast and, and Waterford and in the Midlands, um, in, in the Midlands of Tullamore and Mullingar, but also um, in Limerick. So what we tried to do in the first instance was, was to recognise that and to put in a strong case for additional neurologists. So we, we got five additional neurologists during that period of time to really, to focus on those areas of geographic inequity. And, and that was successful, and those po- those people are in post now. Uh, so geograph- geographic inequities was a really important one. The second one was was recognizing um, where the health services are going, and, and particularly things like Slaughter Care. And um, Slaughter Care put out a call for um, a pilot innovation um, um, award. And um, in my role at Clinicanida, we were looking at okay, so what do we need in neurology? Well, we need a series of not a, not every every hospital should have a full multidisciplinary um, neurological service, but every hospital, every patient should have access to those services. So if we nominate, say, for example, 10 neurological sites as hubs and we resource those sites appropriately with everything that they need, and that aligns with the CHO, the new development of, of regionalization services as well, then we should be looking to to build services within those areas. And if we divide neurological care into things like rare diseases that need to be really centralised, and motor neurone disease is a very good example of that, um, Huntington's disease is another, uh, common diseases that need neurological care ongoing. So, for example, MS is a really good example of that because there's so many disease-modifying drugs that need surveillance now um, that people need to be linked into a neurological uh, service. Um, uh, Parkinson's is another example of that. And then common diseases that could be co-managed primarily in the community, but might need some neurological input. So headache was a very good example of that. Epilepsy sits somewhere between the common that needs that can be cared for in the community and uh, regional support services, and then some tertiary for epilepsy as well. So we looked at developing services along those three main sort of categories and focused on um, headache as an example of what you might be able to do aligned with Slanter Care to develop services. So we put in a proposal to the Slaunch Care pilot program of uh, trying to move the care for people with, with headache and migraine out of hospitals back into the community. And there's a proposal uh, that uh, was aligning the Migraine Association of Ireland, really, really professional and effective organisation, with the hospitals and with the Irish Pharmaceutical Union, the IPU, seeing if we get the pharmacists involved as well. And recognising the role of GPs, but trying to, trying to move things so that... Um, Patients with self care as well, and and, and so then then COVID hit, <laughs> so the pharmacists couldn't really play, uh, because we were looking to c- gather data, but but we, we we got funding anyway, and we got funding for um a number of hospitals to to test this out, and based on my own experience of setting up the migrant the migrant clinic in Beaumont many years ago, um we put in psychology as well, so we had a a, a specialist nurse psychology and admin support, and we were able to show a really good benefit of putting in specialist nurses and psychologists into, into uh, three of the hospitals and also working closely with the AMAI. 
And based on that, we generated data. And out of that, we went to the um, Eta Hegarty's Pathways Programme. This is part of the Integrated Care Programme. And we now have a pathway for headache migraine, which is being rolled out now uh, this year to all the hospitals with um, specialist nurses and uh, psychology and admin. That's not enough. We need more, but it's a good start. So the other two pathways that, that have been successful um, based on this idea were, were the pathway I do, the Motor Neuron Disease Pathway. So that's fully funded now, a fully funded um, whole time equivalent posts of all of the dis- all of the specialties localized in, in one hospital with links to two other satellite clinics in Galway and Cork with um, uh, uh, outreach services where the nurses are, are not in the hospital, they're governed by the hospital, but they're in the community and, and the clinical professionals also work between hospital and community. And we're using that model then to build a business case for Huntington's. And then the third one was, was epilepsy. And I, I can't take credit for that because Colin Doherty has been working on this area uh, along with, with Ronan Kilbride as a need for epilepsy. But Colin is, is particularly interested in um, in um, the vulnerable populations that um, uh, are really falling out of services. And he set up this really fantastic programme under with Solange Care Funding as well uh, to provide a mobile a mobile outreach clinic for people. And, and so the clinic goes to the person rather than the other way around. And that's been really successful and effective as well. And, and that's been funded now through the Pathways Programme as well. Uh, so so that's a, a, a linkage between uh, St. James and the Matter looking after vulnerable people within the Dublin area. And then over time, we'll generate data to roll that out into the community. So there's so, been so a lot think, of innovation um, in, uh, in the programme under your lead. Not finished. In addition to, to that, we, we recognise... Uh, the need again, part of this unmet need of the regions, the geog- uh, this problem of geographic inequity. So, along with the Neurological Alliance, who put together an advocacy program for uh, additional nurses, clinical nurse specialists, and advanced nurse practitioners, and that's been successful as well. Been providing funding for twenty-one new um, uh, specialist nurses in Parkinson's and MS, epilepsy, and and neuromuscular disease. Um, so all in all, we have we have I think thirty two new new uh, nursing posts that have gone through in the last uh, in the last in the last year or so. Five consultant posts, the fully funded program for motor neuron disease, and the development of the epilepsy for or the uh, outreach for vulnerable individuals. So that's that's all going through now. And the, then the next thing that we have to do is set up the training programs for nurses. We're in the process of doing that. In my role as academic in the academic unit and with Colin as, as head of school, Colin Doherty as head of school in, in Trinity, um, we're putting together a, a CPD programme for nurses, but we're working with the School of Nursing with a view to having a, a level nine programme in place for, for neurologic disease. So there is no shortage of innovation there. I mean, there's a number of clinical programmes and obviously it is about improving direct patient care, more consultants, more nurses, making sure there's clinical pathways there. But you've shown that there's an awful lot of innovation as well in what you can do for patients, new ways of doing things, new ways of offering services, going out to patients themselves, having patients more involved, having other disciplines working closer together. So really... It's a very exciting kind of development, isn't it? Because often, as I said there, sometimes with neurology, people just feel there's such an onslaught of, of demand and that we don't have enough uh, numbers, but we are doing great things. I, I think I think things have improved um, a lot since since I started. And, and I, you know, there's obviously always room for, for growth and development. You know, COVID um, also 
spurred things on a lot in terms of the idea of tele telemedicine and and telelinks. I mean, it, I don't think telehealth works in terms of the the patient encounter. I think you know we, we experimented with that in the motion urgency clinic, and really, I I I don't think we can make a clinical diagnosis on 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 the basis of a video call. It's very difficult. But I am working with with um in in our in our the other part of what we do in um this this uh, SFI funded. Uh, academic industry collaboration that are run called Precision ALS, um, which which is building a, a patient data platform, and out of that we will have um, uh, some some telelink device remote monitoring technologies. Uh, and and I'm I'm in, in, in involved in an early an interesting discussion with one of the um, um, industry uh, partners around this idea of using um, AI maybe to to help to to generate an an, an Early differential diagnosis that can speed the patient into a, a an appropriate um, diagnostic situation to confirm the diagnosis. So a lot of lot of interesting innovation underway, uh, um, use, using technology and and working with the colleagues and with my colleagues in the Adapt Center, and uh, um, using um, uh, comp- computational science and data science and innovation uh, innovative innovative. Uh, machine learning. So I think we're working really closely with, with colleagues in that regard as well. And also to substratify people into different subgroups that will need a lot of technology for that as well. So clearly you have no plans to take it easy when your time as a clinical lead of neurology finishes up. And I know you have a number of research projects that you've recently um, become involved with as well. So um, we're clearly going to hear a lot more innovative um, developments from you in the coming years. So I think that's a wrap now. So thanks very much to my guest today, Professor Orla Hardiman, who we could easily do another couple of episodes with. And uh, your most recent award actually was Health Research Board 2023 Impact Award, which recognised how your exceptional contribution to research has informed policy and practice in a way that positively impacts both the care and the well-being of patients living with neurodegenerative conditions and their families. And I think that was a very appropriate win. So thank you again, Professor Hardiman, for joining me today. And please keep tuned for further episodes in this series of the Innovation and Healthcare podcast series from The Medical Independent. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for tuning in. Please subscribe to The Medical Independent for the latest healthcare news and debate. Sign up at www.mindo.ie to stay up to date on all the latest medical news. Join the discussion on Twitter at med underscore indo news. Introducing the new Medical Independent app. Why not join over 14,000 healthcare professionals and stay up to date on the latest healthcare news in Ireland? Read in-depth reports on the issues impacting the health service and medical professionals. Trusted insights, breaking news alerts, in-depth analysis and more. Download the Medical Independent app on the Apple Store or the Google Play Store by searching the word Mindo. The Medical Independent app. Your news, your way.